everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. Happy Thanksgiving. Is Oh, this is our Thanksgiving episode. It is. It is. And last time we've done an episode that falls kind of close to Thanksgiving, we always say... Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy nice. Thanksgiving. No Thanksgiving-themed games this year, though. I actually did honestly look up Thanksgiving-themed games, and most are just games that have turkeys in them. <laughs> I mean, that's really all Thanksgiving is, isn't it? It's really just a holiday that has turkeys in them. Also a holiday that some lady uh, wrote to every president until Abraham Lincoln, demanding that it became a holiday. And Abraham Lincoln was like, fine. Yeah, he was done. He was like, no, I'm done hearing from this lady. And that lady was named John Wilkes Booth. (laughs) (laughs) What if it was John Wilkes Booth who really wanted the holiday, but they like gave him the wrong day or something? That's why he got mad. I mean, it is after our our nation's first Thanksgiving where we came over and we had a harvest festival with the people who were here before us, aka the people who lived here. (laughs) Also, we used to have a lot of random uh, harvest feasts, so like Thanksgiving wasn't that big of a deal. That's true. Uh, It didn't become a big a deal until Abraham Lincoln said this is a day of thanks. He also, I think, made it Thanksgiving during the Civil War right before... Nice. It was, a, it was an awkward time to be thanking everybody. But anyway, Zach, what have you been uh, recently been playing? Well, Seth, beyond it being Thanksgiving, uh, well, a few days ago, it was also Half-Life's 25th anniversary. Wow. It was actually Half-Life's 25th anniversary on the 19th. Officially, it came out on November 19th, 1998, making it 25 years old. As part of the Half-Life 25th anniversary, Steam not only had Half-Life available for free, but also they updated it. Oh, They also provided a whole bunch of updates to make uh, quality of life changes, such as fixing the aspect ratio problems that were in the original game, making resolutions a little better on better monitors, and also just in general, improving some small quality of life stuff. It was mostly aesthetic updates. They didn't really do anything like gameplay-wise, it's the same old Half-Life 1. But one thing they did add was add in Half-Life Uplink, which was a demo. So Half-Life Uplink came out obviously before Half-Life did. It was a demo for Half-Life. But what's unique about it is that it is an original storyline and level. Like in Half-Life Uplink, there is a story that is kind of part of the main story of Half-Life, the Residence Cascade, but is the events of Half-Life Uplink never happen in Half-Life. So you're not going through an area that you later go through when you play the final game. You're going through an area that you never see again and doing stuff that never happens in the final game. So that's pretty cool. Really, Half-Life Uplink was designed to kind of get players familiar with the gameplay. So there's like a puzzle to use the crowbar and you get the gun really early on and like you get other weapons really early on. Um, It was pretty much just designed to show you how to play the game and get you some comfortable familiarity with different puzzles and stuff you might encounter in the final game but i do think it's cool that it is a separate area to explore and it is kind of uh standalone from the rest of the full game so i was playing a bit of half-life uplink and uh that's what i've been recently playing before we move on from half-life we are during the autumn sale right now so if you missed the free steam half-life game you can still get it for a dollar with the major update and with the major update it's now steam 
deck verified. Seth, what have you been recently playing? Recently, I've been playing a game called Carmageddon. It's the 1997 vehicular combat video game developed by Stainless Games and published by uh, Interplay. This game is hilarious. Uh, it actually got me to laugh while playing, which is not something I do very often. Apparently, the game was originally going to be a Mad Max game, but they couldn't figure out who owned the license to Mad Max. Yeah, it happens. So they instead got the license for Death Race 2000 because Stainless Games made a Destruction Derby game that their publisher, Interplay, said, we'll publish this if you get a license. So they got a license for Death Race 2000, which is a movie that is not Mad Max and arguably probably not as popular, but was popular at the time, uh, or at least was known at the time. The game is... uh, brutal and is gratuitous for the sake of being gratuitous it was actually censored in a number of different countries because of the amount of gore in, in it you drive a car around with the car that i picked had a buzzsaw in the middle and you drive a car around through a map that doesn't really have clear directions on where you're supposed to go but there are people to kill there's just pedestrians that are walking around you run them over you get points uh and you get money and you get profit for running people over and killing them i i don't know how or why but if you think following the other cars will lead you to the end that is also incorrect they also don't know where they're going because there was a part of the game where i drove into a football field that was a dead end there was just a pile of football players and you could drive around just running over all these people and all the other cars follow you into this football field but the football field has no further way to go to like the racetrack that you're racing it's just mass murder of football people uh the controls are a bit off because the numpad controls the car so wasd and the and the arrow keys do not control it so i'm actually pretty stubborn so i the car behind me actually pushed me all the way to the first checkpoint before i figured out how to actually get the uh, engine going but yeah uh so if you like hilarious fun violent racing video games uh check out carmageddon uh, and just prepare. Uh, but if you want a more modern racing game that's not as violent, you can check out Midtown Madness or arguably like the Burnout series. Yeah, Carmageddon is pretty fun. I played the demo of it, I think. And yeah, it's it's a pretty brutal game. And like Deadpool brutal. It's just like comedically just blood. Like you're just running over people and there's just blood shooting everywhere, blood going under your tires. But the game's called Carmageddon and arguably has a car on it that looks like it's covered in blood. So clearly you know what you're starting up before you start this game. It makes no bones about what it is. Yeah. Well, today's episode, we're not going to be talking about Carmageddon in but we are going to be talking about a game with cars that's right now throughout this podcast history it's probably evident that we have a bias towards certain video games and those tend to be either boomer shooters for me or adventure games for seth or just dos and windows 3.1 games for both of us for the last like 20 episodes with that our catalog of episodes do tend to be somewhat reflecting that however there's one genre that we're really bad at covering that's racing games or rather just car games in general we did do an episode back in episode 75 when we had matt uh, a friend of mine from college also known as the not so handy car guy and he came on to talk about racing games in general and we talked about the cruising series and the need for speed games uh but it was kind of a general overview episode so this episode we're going to talk about an early racing game that was popular and also technically not a racing game that game is Outrun. Back in the 1980s, Sega was in the business of making arcade cabinets. And one of their main developers, Yu Suzuki, was great at designing them. The cabinet of Hang On was already in the market. And that's a game that we should talk about on its own in the future. But the short story is that Hang On was the first
first example of a full body arcade cabinet since there was a motorcycle like that you literally climbed on top of and used as the controller. Yeah, it's great. I'm I've played a version of Hang On. I love Hang On. It's a great game. Yeah, and that's something that's still done today. So if you go to a like an arcade today, you'll see motorcycle arcade games. They'll have much better graphics than Hang On did back in 1985, but Hang On was that first example. Hang On, which was again released in 1985 across the US, it was very successful and Yu Suzuki led the charge in releasing Enduro Racer the following year in 1986. Enduro Racer was Hang On, except instead of a motorcycle on a paved course, you drove a dirt bike on a dirt course. Both of these games had something in common that they were missing. That was two wheels as they were both bicycle games. And Yu Suzuki wanted to develop a car game, which has four wheels. Uh, Yu Suzuki really enjoyed the movie Cannonball Run, which is an American movie about a cross-country illegal road race starting in Connecticut and ending in California, starring the icons of the age, Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, Roger Moore, Farrah Fawcett, and Dean Martin. And a number of other actors and actresses. Yu Suzuki prepped his idea for an American-based racing game where various courses would be spread throughout the States, and he went off to his boss to get sign-off because Yu Suzuki would ultimately need to travel to the U.S. to scout locations in order to properly represent the the games and design the stages within them. However, uh, Yoji Ishii, Suzuki's boss, claimed that Hayao Nakayama, who was Sega's president at the time, believed that the U.S. was, in fact, not a safe place to go, and that perhaps Suzuki should go to Europe instead. Uh, Suzuki would come to his own conclusion that also the United States was empty. So not only was it not safe, it was empty. So it would be boring to make a video game about it. (laughs) It was both unsafe and boring as sin. So because it was unsafe and boring as sin, he decided, yes, Europe would be a far more suitable location. So he got to do something that I'm just going to say was probably really nice for him. He rented a BMW 520 and he spent two weeks just scouting Europe for ideas where his tour would take him to Frankfurt, Germany, the Swiss Alps, the French Riviera. Also within Italy, he would go to Rome, Florence, and Milan. Now, while he was in Monaco, Suzuki saw and was inspired by the Ferrari Tessarossa, which is a very nice looking car. And he would decide that the Ferrari Tessarossa would become the playable car. So the production team would go and find one and take extensive photographs and record the sound of the car to be able to incorporate that into the video game. Now, there's a couple things that were going on at this time for Sega. First of all, arcade business, not doing so hot. So they really were concentrating on their home console market and weren't really supporting the arcade businesses were because it wasn't making that much money. And they had just a number of other projects that were arguably a higher priority than what Suzuki had in mind with whatever he was doing with driving around Europe. Suzuki would have to beg, borrow, and steal staff in order to get together a team to work on OutRun. It would end up being himself, four programmers, a sound creator, and five graphic designers that would bring the project to life. Uh, Suzuki would end up taking on the lion's share of the programming and the planning of how all the, the whole game would work and like how 
the different stages would work and just the whole ideation on the game itself and would end up working overtime to complete the development of OutRun only within 10 months. Uh, Suzuki spent most of his time really thinking about what made the game a fun experience, making sure that the tracks were fun and that the music was enjoyable to listen to and he was very successful at making sure the music was good. Um, with the help of Hiroshi Kawaguchi who worked with him on previous games such as Hang On and I believe Hang On was actually Kawaguchi's first foray into video game musics because of Suzuki. The music that would be brought into OutRun is just phenomenal. It's its own kind of Caribbean synthwave style that Zach will play some stuff right here. So great. Yeah, that's pretty good music. Not only was the music good, but so was the gameplay. As we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, OutRun can be generally classified in the racing genre, though it's technically not a racing game since you're not competing with anyone else on the course. The pseudo 3D driving game controls from a third person rear perspective behind the aforementioned Ferrari Testarossa. However, the camera is placed very close to the ground so that the perspective of the player is that of the driver. The player is then given a certain time, and as they pass through checkpoints within a, within a course, they gain more time, and the objective of each course is of course to get to the end. <laughs> I want to say... I I wanted to say course as many times as possible. God, that was so many times. A really neat part of the game is that each of the stages have at the end a two-way junction where the player can determine which way they're going, which for a game that can be completed in five stages has a total of 25 different variants to play through, with the iconic Coconut Beach always being the first one. However, the stages are approached in a different order depending if you play the Japanese or the international version, and there are some different track configurations, but all the stages are themed the same between the two games. The stages vary from Coconut Beach being a wide open road with easy driving and beautiful beach vistas, to the Devil's Canyon where the stage will eventually take place within the canyon tight the road and everywhere in between. Once the game is completed, each path has its own unique ending scene, which always involves the driver and passenger ending up in a humorous situation. One such situation is they pull into the end and the entire car falls apart. Another one, a man brings out a lamp and the driver rubs the lamp and magically two women appear and flank him. The endings are actually pretty funny. I like the one where they bring the trophy out and they give it to the passenger instead of him. Yeah, there's always like a twist to them. Outrun for its time was also incredibly fair and realistic. A quote from Suzuki was, quote, At the time of OutRun's development, driving games were made whereby a collision with another car would automatically result in an explosion, and they had many things that would be impossible with real cars. Even if you were good at driving actual cars, the skills needed in those games were completely different. I wanted to make a driving game where people who were skillful drivers of cars could also achieve good results in the game. For that reason, where at all possible, we simulate features such as horsepower, torque, gear ratios, and tire engineering close to those of real cars. For features that were difficult to control, we added AI assistance. For its time, I think the level of OutRun's production was very high, end quote. Which is a reason why Seth and myself are not good at OutRun. Right, because we're not good drivers. Sega would go on to productionalize the OutRun arcade cabinet and would release five of 
official models, with the first releases coming out in 1986, shortly after the Enduro Racer hit hit the market, probably about three or four months lead. Now, each of the official arcade cabinet models would feature a steering wheel, and with and most of them having a force feedback system that would rumble and shake sometimes more violently than it should, when players would crash or drive off the road. They were also equipped with a gear shift, brake, and accelerator. The brake and accelerator would be uh, pedals. Now, OutRun was also the last arcade cabinet made by Sega that used the Nanano CRT monitors, which were a premium type of CRT monitor at the time. All Sega arcade cabinets following OutRun would use the Samsung monitors in order to save money. The standard deluxe versions of the cabinets would be equipped with hydraulics, which would be synced with the game's actions, and tilt the player with the action to allow a more immersive experience. In Japan, these were called Taiken, or body sensation, and they would go on and pretty much flood the Japanese arcades during this time uh, and really become commonplace and are still present in arcades today. Now, so let's talk about the individual cabinets. The most top-of-the-line cabinet and flagship of the OutRun series was the Deluxe model. It was designed to build to look like a sports car with rear wheels, illuminated taillights, and a custom-molded seat. The model had hydraulics and it had the largest screen, 26 inches across. There was also dual speakers mounted right next to the player's ears to deliver stereo sound very crisply. Now the standard model had a 20 inch monitor and it just had a seat instead of the kind of silly deluxe chair that comes with the uh, the deluxe model. It also it still retained the hydraulics. Then the upright model is the first stand-up version of the OutRun cabinet. And because it's stand-up, it takes up significantly less room than having a massive seat. However, because it's stand-up, it doesn't have hydraulics. <laughs> there may also be uh, some fatigue as the player would have to stand there and you still have to use a pedal and a steering wheel and a gear shift all at once. And let me tell you, it's just not, that's, that's just annoying after a while. Especially if you're not able to sit for an extended period of time. And they did move the gear shift from the left to the right for the stand-up. There is also the Mini, which is a revised smaller stand-up model with that they took the OutRun logo on the side of the cabinet and took that off and put in a reg Sega logo. Um, there are, of course, once again, no hydraulics because it's a stand-up model. And they actually redesigned the rumble feature to reduce the feedback as the earlier models had a little bit too much rumble. Finally, in Japan, there is a rare cockpit style model where the cabinet is designed to look like a cockpit with transparent sheet of plastic in the back to act like a rear window. However, interestingly enough, this version has no hydraulics nor force feedback presented like the other models had. Also, Outright had to have a specific arcade system board just for it, which wasn't really unexpected as Suzuki had been credited for stating that he often can't design games using existing hardware and that Sega usually had to create new boards for him for his games. Uh, Suzuki is also quoted as saying, designs were always 3D from the beginning. All the calculations in the systems were 3D, even from Hang On. I always calculated the position, scale, and zoom rate in 3D and then would convert it backwards to 2D. So I was always thinking in 3D is what he's quoted saying. Now, Outrun and Hang On don't have true 3D. They have 
fake 3D. And OutRun achieves this 3D graphics by using a sprite scaling technique called superscalar technology that was previously used in Hang On. When OutRun was released in 1986, it was the smoothest 3D motion arcade game in the market. Super Hang On and Turbo OutRun would actually go on to use OutRun's arcade hardware. In regards to how it did, OutRun was critically and commercially successful and was quite the attraction to other racing titles that were not as complicated but would end up being more difficult to play. And what I mean by that is that OutRun had nuances to it but was more forgiving. Your car did not just blow up when you hit somebody. Where the other games were easier to play but if you slammed into somebody your car would just explode and the game would be over. It was a harder game but it was more forgiving. They would go on and sell more than 30,000 arcade cabinets worldwide and it would get ported to multiple home consoles including Sega's Master, Genesis, Game Gear, and Saturn systems. It would also see a release across the computer market such as on the MS-DOS, Atari ST, NEC, PC8801, Commodore 64, MSX, and the PC Engine. And it made its way to a Nintendo console too with the releases on 3DS and Switch with the Switch being released a few years ago. The reviews for the arcade were all positive. It was reviewed by Crash, Computer, and Video Game Sinclair User, Your Sinclair Top Score. They all gave positive reviews. The publication Commodore User gave the arcade a 9 out of 10. OutRun would also go on to win two Golden uh, Joysticks Awards for Game of the Year and Arcade Game of the Year in 1988. Now, how would OutRun be remembered? Uh, it would be followed up by various sequels, including sequels in the arcade, with Turbo OutRun in 1989, OutRunners in 1992, and OutRun 2 in 2003. It took them three games to get to OutRun 2. Yeah. There were also home console sequels, such as OutRun 3D in 1988, OutRun Europa in 1991, Rad Mobile <laughs> released in 1991, which was a spiritual successor, and apparently, Hertz, the car rental company, wanted to create an outrun for the Sharp X68000000, but the company ultimately decided that they didn't want that and canceled the project. So that's fun. There was also a 32X version that was supposedly under development that would never be released. Outrun would go on to revitalize specifically Sega's arcade presence. Akira Nage, Sega's former arcade director, said Outrun in particular was amazing for its time. Suzuki went on to make Afterburner and a number of other games, but OutRun is still talked about with a special kind of wonder. With the Taiken games, Sega's arcade business, which had been Sega's lowest performer in sales, gradually started to rise. For me personally, Hang On and OutRun are my most memorable titles. They helped lift the arcade industry out of its slump and created entirely new genres. Yeah, and in regards to it being a Taiken game, released in 1986, there was a game that was done by Konami called the Ar the arcade racer WEC Le Mans, which had a more sophisticated hydraulic cabinet. Uh, however, just because of the whole package of Outrun, we remember Outrun today, and I don't know if we really remember WEC Le Mans 
by Konami. I sure don't. Uh, yeah, I don't. Outrun would, though, go on to inspire an entire music genre, Synthwave, which is inspired by the game's soundtrack and 80s aesthetic. IGN lists only three other games above Outrun when it comes to influence in the genre, those being Pole Position, Gran Turismo, and Virtual Racing. Though pieces of Outrun can be seen through other racing games, selecting radio music has become so commonplace that it is expected of games such as Grand Theft Auto. And the alternate paths in racing games is something that is just part of the genre today. There's a lot of things that uh, Outrun did that you can see bits of bits of it living in like the Need for Speed games, the Burnout games. There's just like the way that they kind of pivoted the racing genre to a more a game that people who are good at driving can actually drive. And I think Outrun did a lot for the genres and I think it, they did a lot for the arcades. Yeah, I think so too. Outrun's fun. I do like it a lot. I've definitely played the Sega version, like the Genesis version, but it's just a great, great game. And I definitely want to play it again now. Now to get into our retro rewind, Seth had me play Lighthouse the Dark Being, which I couldn't get to work. My copy of Win, it said it was going to install. It installed. It got to a screen that said, do you want to enable like Sound Blaster? I pressed yes. And then it said, do you want to enable something else? And I said yes. And then I pressed enter and then the game crashed. And it just kept doing that over and over and over again. So I couldn't play it. I feel like I would have liked to play it because the game looks a lot like Mist. In fact, it has a similar first-person interface where you walk around and look to solve various puzzles. And it has that kind of same, almost realistic, but not quite realistic graphics where it's like, very pre-rendered looking. When it was released, it was actually called a Mist clone, quote unquote, so I think my critique is warranted. I did watch some gameplay and it definitely has the same vibe where you click around to solve various things. And like Mist, there are some spoken audio samples and plenty of things to read. So it does seem fun. I mean, I like Mist, so I probably would like Lighthouse the Dark Being. If I could get it to work, I would play it, uh, but I couldn't. So I can't say whether or not it holds up. I don't want to be a judge of a game I watch solely on videos. Anyway, next week, Seth, you can play Star Tropics for the NES. Nice. Zach had me play Ack Razor for the SNES. Idiot, you play as God, who has a uh, who has to clear out the surface of monsters. So in order to do that, he becomes a knight with a sword because that's how God would do it. You know, being an omnipotent being, <laughs> just get in there, just kill them with a sword. And that plays as a 2D side-scrolling action platformer. The part of that game is predicated on patterns versus just going through and button mashing. Uh, you have to kind of follow the patterns of enemies. If you don't, you will lose. If you follow the patterns, you will win. After you defeat the bosses during the side-scrolling action part, there's a different part of the game where you play as a cherub who, where you have to go around, shoot bad guys, and instruct townsfolks to place buildings. The game is pretty interesting, especially for the time. And it's this blend of, I wouldn't necessarily call it city building it's like city placing. The sheriff part is more of a shooter than anything else. You're like a shoot 'em up kind of like um, with like basic city design and it's a it's a blend that uh, you don't actually really see it don't see it a lot in any really type of games even the sequels to act racer <laughs> you don't see it uh this act racer 2 and i believe there's a, a new act racer on the switch that i don't know if it's called act racer 3 but it's definitely called like something something act racer both of those games don't really have the same blend that act racer 1 has uh, they're both not necessarily bad games act racer 2 is a fine game it, it's just not act racer one which is there's this just a special part of act razor that um sits in the souls of everyone who's played it where 
uh, you can play a little bit of fighting and a little bit of city management. So it definitely uh, definitely holds up. However, before you go and play Act Razor, based on my recommendation, I recommend you find the manual because it came out during an era of time where games would issue out these giant manuals where you actually had to read to before you could play the game. Because if you just go into the game and start playing it, you will not know what to do. Uh, so read the manual and then play act razor it's it's great it definitely holds up next week zach you can play spy hunter for the ms dos sure i will do that and with that thank you everyone for joining us if anyone has any memories of playing outrun please let us know send us an email at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com you could also reach out to us via facebook classic gaming brothers instagram classic gaming brothers x and blue sky cg brothers pod we're available wherever podcasts can be found be it iHeartRadio or Podbean or itunes and you can also find us of course on our website classicgamingbrothers.com with that seth do i have anything that i'm neglecting don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers yeah that's right. right